0: Interesting. Alright, well we have a homework assignment that is due today, uh, meaning that if you have a paper copy you can submit it after class. If you want to submit it online, you have until 6 o'clock tomorrow morning to submit it on D2L. Uh, there is a quiz coming up the end of the week, which will be quiz two, covering chapters two and three. And that will be available starting on Friday and available through the weekend. And I'll remind you again, of course, of it on Monday, and you have to finish it by Tuesday morning at 6. Homework 3. Just what you want while you're finishing up one. Homework 3 is actually a much shorter homework than the last couple. So it's only got five questions on it for you. So here you go, sir. Yep. I'm going to go ahead and give it out now. We probably won't get to this till Friday but for those who want to be able to jump ahead or at least have it there, three, four, you'll have a chance to, to look at it. There's only five questions, but it covers uh, five chapters of the text. Our next unit is five chapters worth all at once. So, four Chapters four through eight, correct. Why are we doing it that way? Well, this is a course on stellar astronomy, but the description tells you that you're going to get a unit on the solar system. And the solar system is chapters 4 through 8 in your textbook. Don't feel that you have to go and read them all in great detail, you know, as much as you look at material from the other chapters. Chapters 4 through 8 as a unit are as much weight as chapter 3. So it's one unit, just like chapter 3 was one section on telescopes, chapter 2 was one section on light and matter. Chapter 4 through 8 is like one chapter. So what you're going to want to look at is look at the PowerPoint slides that I put up. That's what I'll be using for my lecture. It's cut bits and pieces to give you an overview of the solar system, but nowhere near what you'd get if you took the 103 course, when you go into much de- much more detail on each of the planets. But we will go through an overview of that, probably starting on Friday. So that is homework three. Uh-oh. So can- Did I give some someone a homework five that says? <laughs> Trying to jump way ahead, how many people got it? If you got home, I have three more. I'll have to print out more copies for next time if you didn't get it. If you want to keep five, you can. If you want to give it back to me, you can. <laughs> yeah. Who else needs a three? I need a three. Three, three. I'm going to have to get some more. I'll, get a, I'll bring a couple more next time. So if you have five, you can go ahead and hold on to it. Um, but hold on, but number three is the one. I just looked at that when I came here. I said, wait a second, that isn't the right. That's not the right set. There you go. So, homework three will be just on the planets, will be due on the 29th. Uh, Second solar observation is coming up due on the 1st of October. Uh, Second solar observation meaning I need at least one more from you. But if you gave me one the first time and one the second time, you're really running behind. (laughs) Because you want to get 10 over the semester. So if, actually by the October 1st, we're pushing a month and a half into the course. Hard to believe but, so you'd want to get at least, you, you hopefully you'll have more than just one the first time and one the second time. But I need a minimum of one to turn in for me to look at by the first of October. And then the third quiz, uh, right now scheduled for uh, October 3rd through the 6th, that weekend, a couple weeks after this one. And we'll be looking at a second exam right about, probably shortly after that, probably the following week, the week of the 6th. i I'm that's just a rough estimate right now, depending on how everything goes. It'll cover uh, the next three units, so it'll be chapters three, four through eight, and nine. So again, four through eight is, one, is essentially one chapter. It might be five chapters in your book, but it's only one chapter, one unit for uh, like testing purposes. I'm not going to put ex- any extra weight on the, that set. So that's what's coming, uh, coming up over the next, over the next few next couple of weeks. Any questions? Nope, alright, well picture of the day for today then. Uh, this was taken a couple days ago I believe this is the Aurora over Maine, was it just, was it just? I should have looked earlier this, earlier this month. So in the last couple weeks uh, this is the Aurora as seen from Maine. Now the Aurora are caused by the Sun and particles from the Sun interacting with the Earth's atmosphere. So what happens is the Sun is this incredibly hot 6,000 degree temperature big ball of gases and it doesn't just sit there, it actually uh, spews material out into space. Sometimes on a very steady rate, sometimes in big bursts, solar flares and the like. And when those particles strike the Earth's atmosphere they excite the gases in it, much as in our lab the excited gases in the tube and they glowed? Well, if you excite the particles in the atmosphere, they will glow as well. So it really tells us a little bit about what the atmosphere is made up of, which we know anyway. We can take tests of it. But you get oxygen atoms way up high in the atmosphere, give it this uh, pinkish purple glow. And further down, the nitrogen and oxygen atoms together combine and give sort of a greenish glow. We lower down in the atmosphere. So you see a couple different color colorations there that are, that are present. Now when we see the aurora, we always think about them perhaps as seeing them in very far north, very far northerly latitudes. This was seen in Maine, uh, which is lower than some, some of the places you see them. Um, Scandinavia, very prominent. You know, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, very prominent for seeing aurora. Uh, Northern Canada. Alaska, all the very far northerly places. That's because the Earth has a magnetic field around it. And that magnetic field kind of serves as a buffer against all these particles from the Sun. So all these particles from the Sun stream towards the Earth trying to smash into it. And the magnetic field lines kind of push them around. They deviate around so we don't just get constantly bombarded by these uh, high energy particles from the Sun. They get funneled along the magnetic field lines and where the magnetic field lines come into the earth, if you imagine something like this, the earth has, you may have seen like a bar magnet magnetic field. It has these great magnetic field lines coming out of it. When the particles from the sun stream in, they can't go across those, they follow around them and they actually come in and hit the atmosphere close to the magnetic poles. North Magnetic Pole happens to be in northern Canada, so that's why it's very prominent in this er- in these areas. Northern Canada, Scandinavia, etc., wherever very prominent. That's where the magnetic field lines actually come into the atmosphere and that's where you get most of the aurora. That's where the particles can actually strike the atoms in the atmosphere. Now when you get very intense storms, which is what just happened to give us this nice auroral display down in Maine, then you can deform the magnetic field. So you can actually scrunch it down and you can actually have aurora much further south when you have a very intense burst of particles coming from the sun. And that's what happened over the last couple of weeks. Uh, There's another burst that it notes in the description that's supposed to strike tonight. So there's another chance to see the aurora tonight. Whether it'll be enough to get down to our latitude is a good question. It has to be very, very intense to get down to a latitude like ours. Some of the very intense flares uh, aurora have been seen down in Georgia. So if you get a real intense flare, it's, you can see the aurora much further south than even where we are now. So something to take a look for. You know, If you get a chance to look north tonight, if it's nice and clear, and you've got a pretty dark sky, you might be able to see something not quite like this, but you might notice that greenish glow, especially the green is usually the most prominent off to, the, to very low in the north. So something to have a chance to, to look at tonight. Uh, Anything else there? Yeah, tonight offers another good chance, so any questions? No, 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 all right. Well, we will head on to try to finish up telescopes then. Telescopes. We were right here last time, so let me put this back up and kind of review this where where we were. We were just kind of starting to talk about radio astronomy. And we looked at some radio telescopes. Um, Radio telescopes looks like a big satellite dish and it's used to collect radio waves from the sky. So instead of collecting visible light, what we're used to seeing, we collect much longer wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation. And it gives us a completely different picture of the universe. So here's one example I talked about last time. We have here a galaxy. This is uh, Centaurus A, one of the nearest active gal- or, the, or the nearest active galaxy to us. It's a big elliptical galaxy, big spherical galaxy, but it has this really unusual big lane of dust going across the middle of it. When we talk about galaxies, we'll find out that's very unusual. That's not typically what these galaxies will look like. So there's something unusual with this galaxy in the first place. Likely it's two galaxies actually colliding together. There's one big elliptical galaxy and one spiral galaxy probably colliding together. But, just looking at it visibly, this visible portion, the regular white light here, is all we can see. You can ignore the reds and the greens and the blues for right now. That's what we see if we look at this in the visible spectrum. If we instead look at it in just the radio spectrum, just look at it with much longer wavelengths, we don't see any of this galaxy. That's mostly stars. Stars don't give out a lot of radio radiation. Yes, some, but not a whole lot. But there's something else going on down here in the core, black hole, that is collecting material and sending it back out in two very high-powered jets, which are the material we see here. And that's where all the radio radiation is coming from. So we see get two completely different pictures. And the radio really helps us to understand, you know, maybe more what's going on down in that core. Whereas just an optical it looks like a very unusual galaxy but not really getting a good detail as to what might be happening down there. So looking at a completely different wavelength, a completely different frequency really helps us to better understand what's going on in these galaxies. Now, the other ones, just to mention, we mentioned the advantages of radio astronomy. First of all, can observe 24 hours a day. So right now, there are radio telescopes that are out there observing. The sky is nice and dark for them. It's not emitting a lot of radio waves, right? The sun emits radio waves. But it's the visible light that gets scattered all around the atmosphere by the atoms in the atmosphere and causes the bluish sky that we see. Radio waves don't do that. They just come straight through. So unless you look very close to the sun, you don't want to do that, but any place else you can actually observe. So you can observe 24-7 with a radio telescope, including the fact that you don't have to worry about whether it's cloudy or not. So you try to make a solar observation, it's cloudy and raining today, it's cloudy and raining tomorrow, it's cloudy and raining the next day. That doesn't matter for radio astronomy. Radio waves come right through the clouds just as radio waves come, you know, cell phone signals can come right into a building. They go right through the walls. You don't need an opening, you don't need windows, you don't need anything else. The waves will still get through or are still able to penetrate. They don't see the solid surface and the same way the radio waves don't see the clouds, they can come straight down and allow us to observe them even during the rain, snow. Um, when it gets really intense, really heavy rain will cause some problems. You know, blizzarding snow will cause some problems. Uh, But just a regular ordinary rain, even even a nice strong rain, will not really interfere with the observations. Certainly thunderstorms will. Electrical discharges will cause a problem because that interferes with the radio equipment and will cause problems. So, telescopes will shut down if there's, you know, a major thunderstorm coming through. But other than that, there are telescopes that run all the time constantly observing observing objects 24 hours a day 7 days a week 365 days a year many of them are just completely automated now and just you set up the program we're going to observe these 100 sources today and just go from this one to this one and you don't need to do anything anything else so radio astronomy again seeing a completely different wavelength the problem with radio astronomy has been the resolution And we looked last time at how we can figure out the resolution of a telescope. It depends on the wavelength of light you're observing. And it depends on the diameter of the telescope. So radio waves are much, much longer, many times longer than optical light. So this top number is very big. The bottom number is also big. The size of the telescope gets bigger. But it doesn't begin to compare to the wavelength difference. So this is many times larger for radio waves than this is. So you get to end up getting a much bigger number for resolution. In resolution big numbers are bad. You want the smallest number, you want to be able to see the finest detail you can see to get the highest resolution. So radio telescopes, Because of that long wavelength, even though we use telescopes that are 100 meters, 300 meters across, is much worse than a typical optical telescope. Now how we get around that is a method that we call interferometry. Interferometry takes multiple telescopes observing, all observing the same object. The two pictures on the right are of the very large array, the VLA, out in New Mexico, out in the deserts of New Mexico there. And that's an array of 27 telescopes. There's three arms, one here with nine telescopes, nine going out that way, and nine going out this way. And what astronomers can do is to observe the same object with all of those telescopes at the same time combine all those signals together properly, and end up with an effective telescope size equal to the distance between the furthest two telescopes. So not just the size of one telescope, but if this telescope is here, and there's a telescope over here kilometers away, you now have effectively, for resolution purposes, a telescope that is kilometers across, as far apart as you can get those two telescopes. These ones are actually movable. If you note the railroad tracks there in the inset image, there's actually railroad tracks there. These telescopes can be moved. And there are several different configurations. This is very compact here. This is all, the th- you can see nine telescopes relatively close together. You can actually move them. So these telescopes can be moved out. And you can stretch them much further across, uh, across the desert down there. So they can be spread out a little bit more so you can look at different resolutions. When you have them in a nice compact array, you get to see, you get collect more, you are able to see a little bit more. There's some reasons you want to do a nice compact array in terms of you have your telescope filled in a little bit better. Okay, if you imagine the telescope as big as this and you've got 27 telescopes there, you filled it in a little bit more than if you stretch these things two or three or four times further away. Your coverage is getting very very sparse. Still gives you a great resolution and in fact the VLA is designed to give resolution about that of what optical a teles- um, good optical telescope can give you. Meaning that the, ob- the telescope observations if we're looking at the same object would then be comparable. So, a good way that astronomers use to be able to increase the resolution of radio astronomy. We can't change the wavelengths, right? We're observing radio waves. They might be, you know, so many centimeters in size. We can make much bigger telescopes. Hard to make a telescope dish, a satellite dish, 20 kilometers across. Right? That'd be awfully hard. even building it into a mountain would be very difficult. But technologically, we can build a whole bunch of telescopes that are maybe a hundred feet across. Not too bad, a hundred feet, that's not bad, it's a big satellite dish but it's not unreasonable. And put a whole bunch of them together and then combine the signals. So we can get much, much higher resolution than radio astronomy would ever be able to have gotten otherwise. What happens, how it works, is that here we're looking at two different telescopes and They're slightly different positions on the earth, so you get two signals coming in and perhaps in this case you'll find out that they're lined up so that they add up. The two troughs add together, the two peaks add together each time, so you end up getting a much stronger signal here from these waves. Everything's in step in this case. In this one you might be shifted off, so a trough in one meets the crest in another and you end up minimizing the signal. We don't need to go into the details as to what, as to how it works, but astronomers can take all that information as to how the waves line up, either completely in step, completely out of step, or somewhere in between. Maybe they're halfway in between, and can take all that information and use that to figure out what the image would be like for the entire telescope of the distance between for a telescope, the size of the distance between those two. So, again, it's talking about preserving the phase relationship. All that means, you know, big words there, but all it means is looking at how the waves line up. Do they add together constructively to be stronger? Do they add together destructively to be a little bit weaker? Are they someplace in between? And when we look at that from 27 different telescopes, We can take computers, reanalyze, and get the actual images as to, as like, just like the telescope were as large as we think. So, it works very, very well for radio telescopes. The one I showed you, I don't know if I put terms up on that, but that was the VLA, very large array. Yes, those very inventive names. We had the VLT, the Very Large Telescope. Now we got the Very Large Array. Uh, very inventive names for some of these. But that's out in New Mexico. 27, 20 set of 27 telescopes that can be all observe the same object at the same time and give us an effective telescope. You know, it's a Y shape here that is equal to as far as your telescopes are. You know, how many kilometers out do you go? as far as your railroad tracks that are set up let you and then you can have an effective telescope that's that that big in diameter for resolution. it will be able to see details essentially about as good as an optical telescope can. So here's what we get. Here's looking at images here. Um, A radio telescope image to the left of the galaxy, this galaxy. A optical telescope to the right and if you look, as we go throughout the text, I don't know if I, po- I think I've pointed this out yet, you get these little bars underneath each one. Uh, that's just telling you what wavelengths you're looking at. So in this case you're looking at R for radio waves, real long wavelengths. Here you're looking at V, visible light. So if we were to take an image with the Hubble Space Telescope, you know, we'd get something like that. Uh, if we take an image with the VLA, we'd get something like this. And Are they exactly the same? No. They're not, they shouldn't be exactly the same because we're looking at completely different parts of the galaxy. The radio is looking at typically gas clouds. So you're seeing where all the big gas clouds, all the hydrogen is. It can map out that hydrogen. So you can really see the spiral arm structure of this galaxy pretty well. Whereas the visible light is not looking at the gas so much as looking at the at the stars, seeing where the, st- where the stars are. The stars combine, we don't see the individual stars, but their light combines together to give us the optical image. But in terms of amount of detail we can see, we can now match things up. If there's something interesting happening with one of these objects, this little galaxy up here, perhaps, you know, we can look at it and we can see if there's a small object here, small object here, that we want to try to match up. Where is it in the visible? Where is it in the radio? We can now match them up. Without interferometry, this would pretty much be a pretty big blur. We'd see that there's a radio source here, but I wouldn't be able to distinguish between this one and this one and this one and this They'd all be blurred together into one big source. So we'd know that, there was, that this was emitting radio waves, but we couldn't track down. Maybe there's something in this spiral arm we want to look at in more detail. Maybe out here, something we want to look at in more detail. But we can't necessarily We can't do that without having the higher resolution. So now we're actually getting resolution close to optical or beyond. Uh, Some of the radio telescopes now, it's gone through stages, there was a time when radio astronomy had no resolution compared to uh, optical, then it got as good and even better than optical and now it's kind of turning around the other way and going backwards. And some of the optical are actually getting even better. Radio astronomy has kind of reached its, its limits, in some cases. Let me just see if I had, nope, I want to go back. I do want to talk about one more thing before I do that. Um, I mentioned the very large array. That gives us a telescope that is kilometers across. That's pretty big, but we're not, we're not at our limit yet. We can put telescopes all across the country. We can put telescopes out towards Boston. We can put telescopes out towards San Francisco, uh, down south, you know, in the northwest. We can put telescopes all across our country and use what we call the VLBA, Very Long Baseline Array. So instead of just being out the size of a chunk of the desert in New Mexico, now we have a radio telescope that is essentially the size of the country. And there's a set of, I believe it's like 20 telescopes that are scattered across the country that can be observed. So You can observe it with the same object with all these telescopes at the same time. And now instead of your telescope being kilometers across, you can talk about telescopes that are thousands of kilometers across. Hard, Hard enough, you know, 300 meters was a big telescope. Right? The 300 meter telescope in Arecibo is really big. But we're starting to talk about things that are kilometers or thousands of kilometers across now. And astronomers can go one step further, change one letter there, it's very long baseline interferometry. Instead of limiting it to our country, now we can observe with telescopes in England, telescopes in you know, South America, South Africa, Australia. And as long as you're looking towards the same object, you right, can't use the whole Earth quite at once because objects won't always be above the horizon, but you can use half the Earth, and now you have a telescope that is the size of the Earth. And now, astro- now radio astronomers are pretty much stuck. How do we get any bigger than that? We've gone to the size of the earth. We put something in orbit. We could put a telescope in earth orbit, add a few hundred miles to it. That's not going to help a whole lot when you already have something that's thousands, tens of thousands, hundred miles across. What's adding a couple hundred miles? It's not going to make it any bigger. The next big step would be to be able to put some kind of telescope maybe on the moon and get a telescope that's the size of the Earth-Moon distance. That would really increase the resolution if we could do something like that. But as to what we can do on Earth, we're pretty much done. VLBI is about as much as we can do here on Earth. So optical telescopes with some of the adaptive optics that we talked about last time are now able to get very high resolutions as well and we're getting back to the point where we can you know see everything at roughly the same resolutions. So, I wanted to mention that and then I wanted to talk about this interferometry. This is something else that's being worked on now, is using the same process with visible light. So, it works so well with radio waves, why not do it with visible light as well? Well, there are processes to do it. The difficulty is, with radio waves, they're long. I mean, they're, they can be, you know, half a meter or a meter long, or, you know, a few centimeters at least for some of the smaller ones it's much easier for, to work with the phases. You can keep the wave phases and keep track of the, They're able to keep track of that and measure that much easier. When you get to optical telescopes those wavelengths are incredibly tiny and it's much harder to do. So technology is getting there but you're not to the point where you could possibly observe, a teles- observe an object on one end of the earth and observe an object on another end of the earth with the same optical telescope and be able to combine those signals later. Our technology is not there, but we're getting to the point now where we can do closely spaced telescopes, relatively close together, you know, not even out to the VLA range, but relatively close, and start to work on being able to combine those signals and to allow us to get much better resolution there. So once the technology improves, optical telescopes will really jump up in resolution in terms of being able to combine all these signals together. So it's something that can be done, can be done with visible light, but it's not near as easy uh, for astronomers as it is in in radio. Alright, well, last section of the chapter is really looking at the other wavelengths, so we're going to talk a little bit about those. Uh, These are two images taken of a gas cloud infrared radiation, infrared telescopes, these are the other ones that we can observe from the earth if we're up high enough above most of the atmosphere, above most of the water vapor. And the image here is showing you exact same part of the sky. Here's what it looks like in visible light. Lots of dust there blocking out the light and dimming the light from the stars. We can't really see. You can pick out there's some stars there, but they're really faded into the haze of the dust. Well, infrared is not affected by the dust near as much. So if we look at that exact same part of the sky with an infrared telescope, now instead of seeing a few clouds barely peeking through the dust, the the stars stand out brightly. We really can see the stars. There's a small cluster of stars here and all these other stars that are, can you find them here and match them up? It's even hard to do. You know, there's a few stars that are barely peeking through. They're very easily visible when we look in the infrared. So in terms of studying gas clouds and looking into them, infrared is much, much better because we can look through the, we can look through that dust. The dust is not affected, the the infrared radiation is not affected by the dust and allows us to see it directly. The nice thing with this is that infrared wavelengths pretty much behave just like uh, visible. They're just a little bit longer. So we can use the same mirrors. We can use the same, we don't need to develop new technologies. It's not like a radio telescope we had to build a satellite dish. It was a completely different type of detector. Infrared, really you can use the same lenses and the same mirrors that you use for optical telescopes and they can observe in the infrared as long as the light can get to you. So you can take a telescope, a mirror built for in for, for visible light and use it to observe in the infrared. The Hubble Space Telescope does this. It's up above the atmosphere. Its mirror will reflect infrared light. If you put an infrared detector on it to detect that infrared light then you can get images much like this from Hubble Space Telescope. But you see so you can use mirrors or lenses there. So the same technology is really the same. The only thing different is the detector. Infrared telescopes, again, I've already mentioned, you can put them on mountaintops. You can also fly them up on a balloon. Take Anything that gets it up high above the atmosphere. They're put on mountaintops. Uh, there's airplanes that you can fly. So airplanes that fly you know, way, way up there. They're up above most of the atmosphere, and you can use that telescope up there. Anything that gets you above the atmosphere, much of the, as much of the atmosphere as you can. Satellites are nice. But, it's significantly more expensive to put its satellite into space than it is to be able to fly a plane or to launch a balloon, to launch your satellite, launch your uh, telescope up on a balloon to be able to get it up to high enough altitude to be able to observe. You also have maintenance issues when you get out into space. If something goes wrong and you've got this up in a pretty high orbit above the earth, what do you do when something goes wrong? You're out of luck. Something hits the Hubble Space Telescope right now and knocks it completely out of whack, there's nothing we can do to get back to that. So these telescopes, some of which are put in even higher orbits, we could not get back to if it's damaged or something goes wrong with the electronics, we're out of luck. So something that you can launch or be able to actually work on here on Earth makes a big difference. So infrared telescopes we had. Ultraviolet telescopes, again, are very similar to infrared. The wavelengths are a little bit shorter now than visible light. So you can use the same mirrors, at least, to observe them. Uh, Lenses don't work very well for um, ultraviolet light. Ultraviolet light gets absorbed by glass, so you don't get Uh, You don't get the ultraviolet coming through, which is one of the reasons, you know, I go out in the summer, I wear glasses, and I end up getting my face burned except for these nice big circles around my eyes because the ultraviolet couldn't get through the glasses. So, you can't use lens, you can't use a refracting telescope to observe in the ultraviolet, but you can use a reflecting telescope. Hubble Space Telescope can observe in the ultraviolet as well. And these are a couple of images of objects seen in the ultraviolet. Uh, This is a supernova remnant. A very uh, uh, star star that exploded uh, many, many uh, years ago and this is the remnants of it still moving at very high speeds and releasing lots of energy. The more energy we're getting, the shorter the wavelengths we're going to want to observe at. So a very high energy, very hot object like a supernova remnant, like this uh, star forming regions in the galaxy. Uh, galaxy named M81 here, those are very good to look at in ultraviolet light because that's where they're emitting most of their radiation. So most of their light comes out in the ultraviolet. If we look in the visible, can we see them? Yeah, we'll be able to see them, but they're not emitting near as much light as they would be otherwise in that part of the spectrum. Other way around, on the infrared, you're looking at things that are much cooler. You're looking at gas clouds and things that are much cooler. So it's really a matter of the different temperatures that we're seeing in space. All right, x-rays and gamma rays. Now we've got to get to different technologies. Um, X-rays, if you bounce x-rays off a mirror, they don't do a heck of a lot. They won't bounce off a regular mirror. They will be absorbed into the glass. They will not, or they'll go through. They They don't actually bounce off of it. So now we we do need some new technologies. So sort of like with radio we had to develop some different types of technologies to be able to observe them. To observe X-rays we also have to observe, develop a new technology. And one that's used is mirrors that instead of being a typical mirror that we think of, right? Bathroom mirror but an astronomical one would be curved a little bit. They actually develop cylindrical mirrors. If you get the X-rays coming in Not straight on. If you try to go like this, they just absorb right in and nothing happens. They won't bounce off like a visible light would. But if you glance them off, if you skip them off the mirror, you know, like skipping a stone on the pond, it just glances off the surface, then you can focus the x-rays in a couple of stages. Get them from here to focus and bounce them off this one again at a low angle and you can actually bring them to a focus. So telescopes like this have been developed and have been put out in space, have to be put out in space, because the x-rays do not get through the atmosphere. So we can actually focus x-rays with this technique. Uh, It's just glancing, just allowing the the x-rays to kind of glance off the side of the mirrors. They have to be extremely, extremely smooth, just as visible light mirrors had to be smoother than radio mirrors, telescopes. These have to be even smoother because the wavelengths are even tinier. But we can focus x-rays, so we can actually get them to come to a focus and get ourselves an image in x-rays. And we've had a number of satellites that have been up in space that have mapped the entire sky in x-rays, have looked at specific objects in x-rays, and are now really able to tell us about the even more energetic objects. Emitting a lot more energy even than ultraviolet, x-rays require even higher and higher temperatures getting up to millions of degrees. So, sun, sun is about 6,000 degrees, emits a lot of visible light. Some of the very hot stars and nebulae might be up to 20, 30,000 degrees. They emit a lot of ultraviolet light. Other objects that are up to a million degrees are emitting lots of X-rays. So here's an example of one. This is actually an X-ray image of a, another supernova remnant, Cassiopeia A. Uh, the naming, it comes from The constellation in which it was discovered, and A means it's the strongest radio source that was seen there. So this was actually first detected in radio waves by the naming. Just says it's in the constellation of Cassiopeia, something visible up towards us here. And it was just the very, uh, the brightest radio source in that when it was first, when everything was first mapped. Now when we look at it in much more detail in x-rays, we actually get to see where there's some brighter areas where a lot more emission is going on less emission, but all this is is the remnants of a star that tore itself apart uh, hundreds of years ago. Hundreds of years ago this just, the star exploded, ripped itself completely apart and we're watching those layers now, even hundreds of years later, expand out into space. So that's where we get a chance to see, you know, x-rays show us some of this very high energy and allow us to look through some of the dust uh, and allow us to really look into some of these objects that are hard to see or not emitting a lot of visible light. So that's an X-ray example. Gamma rays on the other hand, gamma rays are too high energy. You can't even focus them if you glance them off the edge of the mirrors. So you can detect that they're coming from that general direction, but you can't really bring them to a sharp focus. So you can know where they are. This is an example of a gamma ray image you notice you're not seeing all the detail that you saw in the other images. Even in the x-ray, the last one we looked at, in the infrared images, visible radio images, we saw a lot more detail. It's just a lot more blurred out simply because we cannot focus. You can see the pixelation down here. We just cannot focus the uh, telescope. There's simply no way to do that with gamma rays. They are extremely high energy. So we're talking, you know, tens of millions of degrees In terms of temperatures. So, very highest energy objects that are out there are the ones that are emitting gamma rays. We can detect them, we can make maps like this, but we can't get really detailed images of them just simply because there is no way to be able to focus them. All right, good. Finishing up here, this is is actually an image of the Milky Way. These are all the Milky Way. And this is looking at the Milky Way in a couple different wavelengths. And so the same object. There it is. This might look somewhat familiar from some of the images we've looked at. That's our Milky Way galaxy. Our galaxy as we see it from inside. That's the disk of our galaxy. Flattened disk. And we see there's two satellite galaxies. There's a lot of dust clouds. There's a lot of star clouds. A lot of stars that have formed there and that are emitting light. If we look at it in other wavelengths, We get some ideas of the same. Here emitting in gamma rays we still get a nice disc. It's a lot flatter. (coughs) In gamma rays and um, infrared and radio you get a very, very flat disc. Much more tightly confined, flattened out than the visible light. In X-rays, wow, you get a big jumble there. A lot of X-rays coming from the center of our galaxy here. Right in that section would be the central part of our galaxy, some, some very strong x-ray sources. Really the point i like you to get here is that we're looking, we're seeing completely different things. When we look at all of these different wavelengths that helps us to get a complete picture of the object. A hundred years ago this is what we had, this one image. That's how we could learn about our galaxy. Now we can look at our galaxy in gamma rays and x-rays and infrared and radio and ultraviolet which is not pictured there and get a complete picture. Really be able to learn much more about our galaxy and how it works. Doesn't apply just to our galaxy, applies to any object that we're looking at. So let me finish up. I got a little review here, just kinda run through the main points of this chapter and then we will go ahead and start on the planets on Friday. Uh, Two types of telescopes, refracting and reflecting. Refracting uh, use the lenses. Reflecting use the mirrors. And the refracting telescope is what? Galileo Scope Friday? I didn't put that back up there. Don't forget. We're going to put those together on Friday. And that'll actually be building a small telescope that uses a lens. So we're actually going to do that. Um, Reflecting telescopes use the mirror. All All the modern telescopes are reflectors. Every single one that's been built in the last 100 plus years right now, the major ones have all been reflecting telescopes mainly because the technology needed to build a lens of that size and that purity has just not been achieved. We could build bigger than we used to, but we still would not be able to compare to the size of the reflecting telescopes we've been able to build. We looked at detectors, uh, charge coupled devices, our CCDs like we use in digital cameras today, our Uh, Very, uh, very much uh, upgraded versions of those are what astronomers use to collect data. When we look at it, we take pictures. That's not the only thing astronomers do. We might just look at brightnesses. We might look at just the spectrum. We might split all the light into the spectrum, the component colors, to find out about that. Uh, I looked at the powers of the telescope. We looked at uh, light gathering power. Big telescopes have more light gathering power allowing us to study fainter objects. They also have better resolution. Magnification was the other one of those and I told you that was the least important. Because if you're, not looking at a fa- if you're not being able to gather enough light to magnify the object, magnification is useless. If you don't have enough resolution to see fine detail, magnifying a blur gives you a nice big blur. So magnifying is the third of those powers. The resolution is limited by the atmosphere for ground-based telescopes. So telescopes that we look at here on Earth, the atmosphere limits them. Not the size of the telescope, really. Um, A telescope that is, you know, 10 or 15 inches in diameter, because of the atmosphere, we'll get a resolution equivalent to something that's 10 meters across. Once the atmosphere blurs it, it doesn't matter how big your telescope is. Other telescopes, if we get it up into space, They're limited actually by the size of the telescope. Diffraction is the bending of light by the telescope. So it's really limited by the telescope size. So if you get telescopes into space like Hubble, it's not limited by the atmosphere because you're up above it. And you're limited just by the size of your telescope itself. We looked at active optics, how we could deform the mirror to really be able to eliminate or minimize atmospheric effects. So now we can achieve much better resolution here on Earth with an 8 and a 10 meter telescope by fiddling with the mirror a little bit and changing its shape. Radio telescopes, big, we talked about 100 meter, 300 meter telescopes, still have very poor resolution, so we increase, we use the interferometry. We combine the different uh, energies from the different telescopes detected together to give us a uh, be- much better resolution. And then finally, let me finish up with these here, We have infrared and ultraviolet telescopes very much like optical. You can use the same mirrors for both. You could use lenses for infrared. And same telescopes can observe all of those. Hubble Space Telescope will observe in the visible, but it will also observe some in the infrared and some in the ultraviolet depending on the detectors. The ultraviolet telescopes as well as X-ray and gamma-ray have to be above the atmosphere. Fortunately for us, most of the ultraviolet gets blocked. All of the X-rays, all of the gamma rays. So when we walk outside, we're not constantly being bombarded by X-rays and gamma rays. So all of those telescopes have to be above the atmosphere, which is why we've only had them the last 50 or so years. Since we've had technology to be able to put satellites up into space and to observe those. So 100 years ago, we had visible light and that was it. Uh, Starting about Really, starting in the 19, early 1950s, so about 60 years ago, we added in uh, radio astronomy, really started to take off, and it wasn't until like the 70s that infrared and X-rays and gamma rays really started to be able to come in as something else that we could use. Uh, other thing I mentioned here, you can focus X-rays. process for focusing infrared and ultraviolet is just like optical. X-rays, you had to use those different types of mirrors and kind of glance the X-rays off the surface. Gamma rays, yes, we can detect them, but we cannot focus them. So we cannot bring them to a focus. But looking at all these different wavelengths really gives us the opportunity (laughs) to study and to understand an object at all wavelengths and really get a complete picture of the object that we would not otherwise. So I'm going to finish up there. And with only like two minutes, a minute or two left, I'm not going to try to start on uh, the planet chapter. So don't forget homework 2 if you've got it. I can take that now. If not, submit it on D2L before 6 o'clock in the morning. And otherwise we'll be starting on chapters 4 through 8. Do look at the slides that I put up there because those are the sections that I'm considering important. That's what I'll be testing you on. So when you're doing reading, you don't have to read all of chapters 4 through 8. Look at the sections I gave you and kind of skim through and read and highlight those sections. Don't feel like you have to go through 5 chapters over the next week. That That would be a lot. Questions? Already, have a good day. I will see you on Friday. Don't forget the Galileoscopes.